This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. It is brought to us by the great people at Bet Rivers. Now, uh, spring training is still going on. We'll have a special one-on-one interview with Brett Boone. Now, you might not think that, well, what's the connection? Well, Brett Boone grew up here and used to hang out in the Phillies clubhouse when they won a World Series way back in 1980. So we'll talk to Brett about those things. That's a special a one one-on-one interview on the, uh, the podcast, but you know, there's a hot topic that's still out there and uh, I need to address it. And here's why I was on a show yesterday on Jacob media a guy named Dan Cilio. He's crazy, but I like him. Uh, he, he was actually, I wrote a, a, a he, I quoted him in my book, the perfect season, Penn state won the national championship. He was defensive tackle for Miami that year who played next to Jerome Brown. And now he's in, Sports Talk Radio it has been for a while. So he invites me on his show, and we're talking about A.J. Brown. And, and I, I made a, gave you my true opinion of uh, A.J. Brown calling in to WIP radio station. I have never, never gotten more negative tweets back at me. That, that, that I, I mean, it's unbelievable. And so here, here's what I know, and if I didn't know it before, this is what you should learn. Being in the sports media is the most disrespected profession in America. You cannot win. Fans will always take the side of the player because the player, they're fans of the players, a hero. They look at the media as the the the, the evil uh, 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 devil who's going to come up from the ground and and ruin everything and run and run players out of town, which really isn't the case at all. Uh, the media is there to cover a story. Uh, there are different kinds of media. The media that actually covers a team is is there to bring to report on the team and bring you facts and figures. And then there's a faction called Sports Talk Radio and Blog Radio and all that kind of stuff where you're generating sports conversation. And for some reason, fans do not realize that. So AJ Brown had a beef, and uh, I as I'm thinking about this whole situation, I'm going. What is his beef? Well, his main beef was that apparently WIP put up an online poll which said, would you trade A.J. Brown for Patrick Sertain? Now, that's an everyday sports talk conversation. You're talking hypotheticals. I mean, you go into a bar, you're talking to your friends, you go, hey, suppose this trade, you, you conjure up trades all the time. It's just sports talk conversation because it goes on for hours, sports talk, and you like to talk about various subjects that will generate conversation and thought. It doesn't necessarily mean that your conversation is going to cure cancer. It's just a conversation. So apparently that poll 
led to speculation on social media that runs rampant that the Eagles are going to trade A.J. Brown when it's not the case at all. So I said for him to call into a talk radio station to say, woe is me, was a weak move. And, of course, when you say something like that about a player, people get their back up. You're trying to, uh, you're trying to pick on my play, all that stuff, and I get it. Believe me, I get it. I understand why people react that way. But let's break this whole thing down. First of all, here's what he said when he got on the radio. And I quote, you all should be helping us. And instead, you're going in another direction. And I'm sort of when did I have the responsibility or when does the media have the responsibility or when does the talk show host have the responsibility of helping a team or a player? That's not your job. Your job is to talk about the subjects. It's like you're not on the team as a media person. You are also not getting a check from the Philadelphia Eagles. I used to say all the time when I was on sports radio, if the Eagles want to send me a check every week, my God, I'll wave a flag for them. There's enough people in the media that wave a flag for them. Every ex-Eagle who's on Sports Talk Radio waves the Eagle flag. And there's, there's a little weasel media guy who stands on the sidelines because he wants to think that he is a member of a team for the first time in his life. And those guys obviously are going to take the, the Eagles side of it. But that doesn't mean that everybody has that responsibility to help out the team. And that's where A.J. Brown goes wrong. Now, what was his beef exactly? He called up to say, woe is me. And I'm going, well, what is the woe is me? Uh, uh, Okay, uh, it is what it is. It's sports talk in a major metropolitan city. He said, I've never seen anything like this shit in Tennessee. And I go, well, this is Philadelphia. Sports in the Northeast Corridor is a little more serious as far as conversation goes than a conversation would be in Tennessee, where the people down there are just obsessed with the SEC. Yeah, they have a pro team down there. I get it. But you're not going to get the same scrutiny there as you would here. So I don't know how he could. He's already misread two things. One about Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio as opposed to Tennessee. And the other is that somehow the media is should uh, always be behind, have the back of the team. And that's not, not the case at all, nor should it be the case. You want to ma- maintain some semblance of objectivity because you need to be honest with your audience. If you're not being honest with your audience, it's going to be a rah-rah. You're not going to be very successful. All right? So I, I hate to lay down the, 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 the law for them. Uh, but but let's just move on. This is certainly low-hanging fruit for A.J. Brown. Blame the media. Fans will just eat it up. Yeah, stop picking on our player, you piece of media crap. You're always driving athletes away, which is nonsense. Nobody in the media has ever driven a player away. It's never happened. You may think it's happened, but it's never happened. Most of the time, they drive themselves out of this town for one reason or another. All right. So uh, I've gotten to the point where, where I kind of laugh about it because uh, fans, I know fans are always going to take the side of the player, not realizing <laughs> that the player, and I'll be graphic here, the player doesn't give one shit about you. And like this, I hate to go back to the old principle in a Bronx tale where uh, Lorenzo 
had the school C on Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle couldn't care less about you. Right? That's the point. And I get it that you want to gravitate to these players and they make you feel good about your sports team. I get it. Um, but especially in this day and age where the salaries have made these players kings. And so, therefore, the, the, the entitlement is such that they don't deserve to take any criticism. And when they get such criticism, they, they blanch at it and they blame the media saying, well, you know, you're supposed to be behind this. <laughs> no, no, not, not necessarily. You don't have to be behind you. You're there to disseminate information to the fan. So um, let's let's look at, at AJ. Apparently, I, I think he thinks his hands are clean here. That his antics do not spur some kind of talk as far as Sports Talk Radio goes. So what did he do this year? He had a couple of arguments on the sidelines with coaches, with players, with his own quarterback. Now, you can write that off if you want, but I look at it like he's supposed to be a leader. So in that situation, I don't think that shows very good leadership, just like I would say the same thing when Travis Kelsey bumped into Andy Reid, which I thought was deplorable. Leaders shouldn't act like that because it translates to the rest of their team. Um, And then at the end of the season, when the Eagles were in turmoil, when they were losing games and they lose six of their last seven games in that time frame, when real leadership was needed, what did he do? He made it a point to say, I'm not talking to the media. Uh, now you look at that and there was a story today uh, in, in the Inquirer by, by Marcus Hayes, who says that an accomplished veteran told him, that uh, Brown's uh, body language, as he was announcing that he wasn't talking to the media, was, quote, an unacceptable example for the younger players. And so this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. He did play a little bit into the diva role this year. So when you put it all together, are, are they picking on A.J. Brown? Like, what? Like, why would he take the time to call in to say people are picking on him? It's just conversation. And players like that, instead of having rabbit ears, that should not even pay attention to that kind of thing. There's no need for him to defend himself. He's a great player. He's the best player on their team. He's not getting unfairly picked on. A radio station put a poll up. Would you trade A.J. Brown for Patrick Sertain? Now, that morphed into uh, the Eagles are going to trade A.J. Brown. It's not true. So why would he play into it? And who exactly is picking on him? I I just don't understand it. And I think it took a lot of balls for A.J. Brown to call a radio station and and come off like he just came out of a crystal clear freshwater lake and he did nothing wrong because he kind of put the wheels in motion for people to look at him critically. So, all right, the bottom line is this. Uh, He has diverted all of his sins in this matter, and uh, he plopped them right into the lap of the media. And the media is used to getting stuff on their lap. All right, so the narrative now is we mistrust the media. Philadelphia fans. And I always go, you know, 
I wish fans would take the time to say it's not the media who's trying to bust up your team or drive teams out of town. The media is just, as a sports talk radio, just trying to stimulate conversation. The people that cover the team are giving you the facts and figures on what's going on. So uh, I was like, the media is the entity that's bringing fans information. They're the ones that are stimulating the conversation about sports because we all love sports, right? And they and and nobody appreciates the media. And that's why I say it's the most disrespected profession in America because you can't win as a media person. And people are going to file this away and say the big bad media is trying to drive A.J. Brown out of town when he was the one who called up and created this whole woe is me thing. And that's the thing that bothers me. I'm not against uh, A.J. Brown. He is what he is. Sometimes he's a diva. And sometimes that act of him being a diva doesn't show good leadership to the rest of the team, no matter what he says. All right, let's bring producer Darren in here. Darren, your thoughts on this? It, it is times like these, Mike, where I makes me think that the Philadelphia fan base is so overrated. How weak are you? that you get upset. They want reporters to be fans. Real reporters are not fans. Just because now there seems to be an increase in fanboy journalism, bloggers that are out there trying to be half fan, trying to buddy up, like even like even so much as that clown on the sideline now who does it. He's trying to buddy up and be a fan now. He thinks he's a reporter. Been trying to be a he's fan a for 25 years. But so he started I mean, that with Andy Reid. I know he did. And now it's like you, if you guys aren't fan, you're not with us. It's not about being with you. It's about sometimes players need criticism for acting like that. And AJ Brown's not the first diva. He's not the first. I mean, every every good wide receiver has a slice of diva in him. It's what makes them good. But the fact that you know they get fans get so upset. Oh, you're just doing it. Stop crying. You sound weak. <laughs> my, my point is, you sound he's, so he's weak. Not, he's not Blow a babe. Up. He's not a babe in the woods, right? He, he, uh, exactly. He, he, we saw we saw some exhibits from him this year that were diva s. To say nothing of the fact that they called their own play in the huddle on one of those games and and tried to convert a long pass which wasn't needed at the time. All right, awful people play. leave that kind awful of stuff alone. That's play. fine. But when you call into a radio station, you want to blame everybody else. I go, well, come on, man. Like, what are you doing? And, and, and I have to read the, 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 these people on Twitter. Oh, he was right to defend himself. I could defend himself from what? What was he defend? What did they do to the guy? There was a poll on talk radio that, that evolved into a conversation about whether they were going to trade him. It's harmless. All right. That's, that's my spin on that. That's, That'll be over. Now, uh, today uh, at the uh, Combine, Howie Roseman and Nick Sirianni spoke. Uh, I watched both press conferences. They were both 15 minutes in duration apiece. So I watched a half hour of nothing. I, I didn't get one tidbit of information, nor did I expect to get a tidbit of information. But you have to follow it along in case they some, say something really interesting. They said nothing interesting. There was nothing interesting that was said. Uh, I, I was thinking that maybe the A.J. Brown topic would, would come up. It came up just briefly. Uh, and, and then uh, I, I was hoping that somebody would follow up on the story 
that was in today's inquiry that Marcus Hayes wrote that Sirianni plays favorites. And that wasn't asked either. So I got no information, and I still have no idea what they're looking for at the Combine because they just they talk and they say nothing, and I shouldn't be surprised at that. I'm the idiot who thinks that something interesting was going to come out of that. Darren? It's that scene from Seinfeld where they're talking about what George and Jerry are talking about presenting the show to NBC. And George says, everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. It's like they had that conversation before every press conference. They come out and they say a billion words that amount to nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I wish that I had a spin on what I heard today. And I'm sorry I can't give you a spin because I – there was nothing that was said that I can actually react to or add to. Um, they're going to go about their business at the combine, and they, they kind of like the young players they have. And uh, you know, there, there was no revealing about whether they would pursue a linebacker and change their their stripes. There was a lot of praise for Vic Fangio and Kellen Moore and the new coaching staff. And you know, okay, I get it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but you know, the joke's on me because. Uh, if I expected something to come out of that, I'm the damn fool and nothing came out of it. So I'm, I'm telling you, you folks who, who hammered me on Twitter, but this is AJ Brown thing. You're right. I'm a damn fool. And you guys are all right. All right. All right. Let's move on to issue number three. This is another hot button issue. It's gotten a lot of attention this week and it's the court storming issue. Um, Okay, uh, Kyle Filipowski of Duke got jostled after Wake Forest beat Duke at Wake Forest. By the way, that night my bet was Wake Forest <laughs> minus two and a half, and it was an outright dub for me with Wake Forest. Now, when you beat Duke, if you're Wake Forest, and you haven't beaten Duke in a really long time, that's a big moment for the students at Wake Forest. So, so naturally, they're going to st storm the court. Now there is all this outrage on how you can stop court storming, as if there have been a multitude of casualties like it was the Vietnam War. There have been exactly two casualties. Both of them happened this year. One was Caitlin Clark, who got spun around. When I when her Iowa team lost to somebody and, and she took a dive, basically, she flopped. She didn't get hurt. And then Kyle Filipowski, who who was like walking like like, I don't know if I'm a player and I see people, I get my ass off the court. Like he, he's walking slowly as if like he was going to like it was Frogger or, or, or something. And he turned his ankle. All right. Those are the casualties that we have had with the storm. Uh, court storming which have gone on for years how many years have people stormed the court you had two casualties this year and one wasn't even a casualty so i think it's an overblown story and but but here's what i say to people okay it's one thing to say we got to stop this like jay billis this is what jay billis said one if you wanted to stop it they can stop it tomorrow he says one time all you have to do is once they're on the court, don't let them off. Just say you're all detained and give citations or arrest them if you have to. Now, Jay Billis is an attorney. First of all, detaining them is, is like you can't you can't 
detain people against their will. That's called false imprisonment. You wouldn't be able to do that legally. Second of all, who's going to detain them? What are you going to bring in? A thousand security people from the tunnels to surround the court? And so no, none of you are all leaving. Like how <laughs> they may catch three people. Everybody's going to scatter like rats. So you're not going to be able to detain anybody. It's this really stupid thing for Jay Billis to say. But here's my retort to the people who say that we should stop this court storming. What's your idea on how to stop it? How do you stop it? The only way to stop it is if you build a fence around the court so they couldn't get down on the court. You can't have a thousand security people holding hands like Red Rover, Red Rover, send Johnny over and block them from going on the court. And you also can't bring in the horses like they did at Veterans State. <laughs> so how are you going to detain oh, young kids from coming up? The schools like the fact that their student body has excitement like that. They don't care. They get fined. They willingly pay the fine. It's good for sport for, for school spirit. Those kids aren't intending to hurt anybody. And, and again, I'm I'm being pragmatic about this. It's one thing to say stop the court storming. It's another thing to be logical and be intelligent on how you stop it. Because you can't. Darren, your thoughts. I totally agree. Like, what are you going to do? Rope off the court? Do you know? Like, and the cost of bringing in the amount of security that you would need. There is no school, not the school, not Duke, no school in America with all the money they have, is going to bring in that much security. Particularly because you can't predict when a big win like that is going to happen. It's not like Wake said. We could win tonight. If we win, we're going to storm the court. Let's bring in an additional $100,000 of security guys and have them waiting in the concourse in the, just in case we win the game. Like, you can't even predict that. It's so ridiculous. You can't do security. I, what are you going to do? Put cameras down and then have, like, the, like the January You can't. The only solution all the is to find the faces. You can't do it. You have to fence the court like it's the gulag. Like, like, you, it, it does, like you rope, people say, oh, you rope it change. off. Rope it off? You mean to tell me kids aren't wiry enough to slide under a rope? What are these? All kid, of them you kidding me? Beers in them. Yeah. They're playing a game of limbo. They'll get under, they're going to the court anyway. Come on. It's impossible to stop. It's, it's nothing just a, that it's you just can do of... about it, it yeah. really. And so you just bite the bullet. And it, and if you think there's going to be a court storming, and like Duke losing Wake Forest there, they should know. Like the coaches said, listen, if we lose this game, uh, you know, make sure you get to safety. You know, like you know, like what like Reggie Jackson did in the '77 World Series, where he was he was bulldozing Yankee fans who had come <laughs> on the field and knocking them over until he got into the tunnel. Like, come on, yeah. get off the court. Like, make sure you get off the court so you don't get harmed. Those kids aren't there to to bang you up. Now, you may get a couple of wise guys that taunt you. Whatever. Come on, man. You play for a major college team. You're, you're, at, you're at a level that you shouldn't be worried about somebody taunting you. Just go off the court. All right. Yeah, you can't be lingering out there. Just get you got like Philipowski was just kind of oh man, whatever. You got to dart off that court, man. The wave of people's coming. Right. And and and, and now these people that go no it happens all the time now, man. When when a, when a fifteen uh, a number fifteen team in the nation beats the number eight team in the nation, they storm the court. No, they don't. 
The courts only stormed in special occasions when there's a, a colossal upset or when you haven't beaten a superior team like Duke for many years. That generates excitement. Oh. All right, let's get to Pat Beverly. <laughs> I, know people, I know people were blown away when he was traded, like they, like they traded Magic Johnson, like, like some kind of a team leader. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He traded Pat Beth. He's such a team leader. So he, he goes to Milwaukee, and all he's done is pee on the Sixers, right? He, he, right, he said, first thing he says is, the difference between Milwaukee and Philadelphia is the guys here want to win. I'm going, okay. Well, they traded your lame ass because they wanted to win. They improved their team by trading you. So, like, I've, I've had it up to here with him. But he has a podcast that's fairly entertaining, and he was talking about Joel Embiid, uh, the the Denver game, and you know Richard Jefferson criticized Embiid for not playing, and he said you should have rested him. His knee probably was in worse shape, and that's the point Pat Beverly was trying to make on his podcast when he talked about uh, what Embiid had to do to play in games, and that his knee was really bad. Here's what Pat Bev had to say. I got a little heat from Joel Embiid when he didn't play in that Denver game. I will never question a player's injury. But at some point in time, you have to recognize that this is a pattern of behavior that he has not played in Denver since 2019, I believe. He's, gonna, he's fighting through knee injuries and for I, the last and again, nine games. And I no said, one knows about. But he still scored 70 points. So my point is this. You rest two days before to get ready for that that matchup against Jokic. I go and tell Jamal Murray, I was like, yo, Joellen's out. He's like, no fucking way. We walking out locker room. He tried to get out there by 18 on the clock. You know, run out by 18. Yeah. I get out there, me and Nick Batum. Yeah, I don't think Joe playing. Huh? What? What? Mind you, this is 18 minutes before the clock. We don't even know what's the fuck going on. Yeah. Joe's trying to fight through it. Literally, knee hanging on by a thread. We found out 14 minutes on the clock. So after a couple games later, Kaminga rolls on his leg. And, you know, Joel, now he's really pissed off because he's now he's fucked up. And I'm like, I ain't had nothing to do with that shit. I'm like, Joel, I would never question a player's injury. I am only saying what the basketball community and culture is saying. I told Joe don't play two weeks before that because he I'm was hurt. You. Okay, I'm going to play San Antonio Spurs, bum team, Charlotte, bum team. You feel me? I know I got to make 65 games. I got to see how the fuck I'm going to make 65 games to get MVP. Also, to get millions and millions and millions of right, dollars the in incentives. Escalators with the you know all-NBA stuff. I'm l l witnessing people spray numbing spray on this man knee during the game. Like, Viox, I'm like, what the fuck is that? Shit I've never seen before. Just to get through the third quarter. People don't understand. He was giving motherfuckers 30 and 40 and three quarters because that's all he had. All right. I get it. You know, he's not the first guy that had his knee sprayed. You know, like Beverly said, I've never seen that. Well, you've never seen somebody spray like a like a uh, a Novocaine type of spray to, to deaden the pain for somebody. That usually happens all the time. And maybe it doesn't happen in basketball. But, uh, you know, Pat, come on, man. And then recently he said the Sixers really don't want to win. They improved their team. Now, they're probably not going to win because they can't win without Embiid. And who knows what Embiid's going to give when he comes back. But they, 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 they actually improved their team by getting Buddy healed. Did they not? Hey, Cameron Payne, he's probably a better player than Pat Beverly. Uh, people say, well, I wanted Siakam. Indiana gave up three first-round picks and a good player for Siakam. So you weren't going to get Siakam. 
you got the the guy who was out there who who was the best player at the time. You needed that kind of shooting. And you got him. Now, is he going to make that much of a difference? No, he's not. Because right now, the Sixers' uh, weaknesses are really exposed. The one of the weaknesses is they can't defend in, in the in the backcourt. They cannot defend on the perimeter. So you're talking about two guys that are pretty good offensively in maxing heel, but they don't defend. And then you're Tobias Harris, who, who's really become an afterthought at this point. He He's now on the downside. Um, uh, he doesn't help you win. You would think that the guys you have on your team – would be capable of lifting you without the star player occasionally. Well, th- they haven't been able to do that, nor, frankly, has the ke- head coach. You know, I know people love Nick Nurse, but he's been incapable of rising this team's level without Embiid. And I, a lot of people thought he was a very savvy coach, that he would be able to win some of these games, but but he's not. So everybody takes uh, their share of the blame. Uh, the Sixers are not a good team right now. It remains to be seen when it comes back, whether they can be a good team. But they're sliding down in the standings. They don't have home court advantage. They may be in the in the play-in round. Uh, so it's a hard, long climb for the Sixers. And maybe Embiid could pull it off. Who knows? But right now, uh, I'm not uh, very optimistic. Okay. Um, Phillies spring training, uh, too early to really have an impression on what they're doing. They've had a couple of away games. Uh, Nola did look good in his first start, uh, but we haven't seen a lot of anybody else. Uh, although I thought Soto pitched well the other night when I was watching that game. He looked pretty good. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All righty, it is the Mike Missanelli podcast, and uh, meanwhile, the Phillies in full spring training mode in our continuing progression through spring baseball. We we bring you a sit-down today with a very special guest. He's a three-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glover at second base, two-time Silver Slugger Award winner. He comes from a pretty famous baseball family, and he has his baseball roots right here in Philly, and oh yeah, I, I, he's, got a, he's got a younger brother, I think he's a manager for some team in the big leagues. He, of course, is Brett Boone, now doing a podcast called the Brett Boone Podcast. Brett, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. You know, I, I looked at Google, and I saw a question. Is um, is Brett Boone Aaron Boone's brother? And I'm going, <laughs> he's the first son. He had a better career than Aaron. Mike, I'm, I'm kind of used to it. You know, at first, I was a little offended because you're right. We, we Our family runs in cycles. You know, I was always... As a kid, I was Bob Boone's son, and, and Bob Boone was Ray Boone's son. And then during my career, Bob Boone's my father. Oh, your son's Brett Boone. And then Aaron's my brother, and I'm carrying the mail for a while. And then all of a sudden, it, it started the first time I heard it was when Aaron hit the home run in 2003. We were both still playing. And uh, they said, oh, you're Aaron Boone's brother. And I, and I had a check, and I said, wait a minute. Did you say I was Aaron Boone's bro? Okay. For today, because that the the size of the home run that he hit, I'll I'll accept that today, but tomorrow we go back to the correct pecking order. And then he got the Yankee job and and um, you know, now it's as we get older, you know, we can laugh at ourselves. And uh I think he's doing a great job in New York. I'm I'm proud of Aaron. And uh yeah, people joke, uh, oh now you're you're Aaron Boone's brother. And and for the people that don't know me and for the younger generation that didn't grow up uh, when I was playing, I, I'm Aaron Boone's brother, and I, and I've just got to accept it. But I'm I'm proud to be Aaron's brother. 
Well, you you, uh, you you can't run from that Yankee thing. I mean, he hits the home run in the upper deck as a Yankee in a big spot eh, because the manager of the Yankees sure. and he's in the tabloids all the time. And and he's also like I didn't I didn't see this side of him because I w- watched him on TV. I thought he was a pretty level headed guy. He's a maniac sometimes. He is. You know what? What's funny? Aaron's one of the most genuine people I know. Not not saying that because he's my brother. High character guy. He's a lot like my dad in a lot of ways. Him and myself are oil and water. Uh, although we do think a lot alike from a from a sport baseball perspective, but that's what Aaron is right there. What you see on the field that's not premeditated. That's not oh, watch me get all excited to you know, to really back my players. Cause he's known as that guy that really backs his players. That's Aaron Boone. And when, he, when he goes out and he argues with an umpire and he tries to reason with him, cause I know what's going through his brain. He's thinking, okay, I don't want to make this look guy look bad. I don't want to disrespect him, but at the same time, I got to get my point across what's going through my head. That's Aaron Boone when he was nine years old. And he used to tag tag along with me and my older friends. My older friends, the the guys my age, we're four years difference. Uh, they liked having Aaron around, and and we'd let him play, you know, street hockey with us and and touch football. And when when the game got a little too rough for him because of the age difference, Aaron would sit on the sidelines and he would announce the game. So those arguments you see on the field right now, I laugh because I can put myself back into those, our, our childhood days. And that's what he used to do. You know, I'd tease him and I'd say, Aaron, you know, that's not a first down. If we're playing touch football, just an example. And he, what do you mean? And he had this squeaky voice. What do you mean, Brett? That's a first down. I know it's a first down, but I've got to get his goat. And, <laughs> and every time he goes out and I give him a hard time about it. I said, you know, you might want to back off a little bit on getting thrown out. We had the reputation uh, in our playing days. I was always the the boon with an edge, you know, the fiery one. And Aaron was always the nice guy. Well, that's that's changing now. You know, I've got to answer more Aaron Boone's my brother questions. But <laughs> those umpires I know like me a lot better. And and I'm kind of turning into the good guy now, and I kind of like it. It's a role <laughs> reversal. But, no, that's, that's genuine Aaron that, Boone. That is awesome. Now, he cares. And, uh, like I said, that's just how he is. We were talking about a great family. Ray Boone, of course, your grandfather was a major leaguer. Your dad, uh, very legendary in Philly circles. And and here's the thing about you. You're you're a great major league player. And you, your success was kind of predicted by all the people in the clubhouse that you dazzled as a kid. So you're in the clubhouse. And, and those were the great teams. The, Philly, the Phillies had just started to form that great team. Uh, and it, it culminated in, of course, the World Series Championship. But... You're in the clubhouse on almost a daily basis. And I, 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 listen, I've been around long enough to, to remember the stories that those guys used to say, this kid's phenomenal. He's like unbelievable. He's shagging fly balls. He's catching them behind his back, the whole thing. So it wasn't a surprise that you turned out to be a pretty good major league player. So you grew up in South yep. Jersey, right? Uh, Cherry Hill, actually Medford is the actual Now, did place. you play? Did, okay. So you're from Medford. You, you grew up in Medford. And and I assume that you played. Uh, I, I don't know how old you were when you left here, but um, you honed your skills in in those t-ball leagues and little leagues and stuff. Without a doubt, you know I'm a Jersey. I'm a Jersey kid at heart, and I grew up. Uh, I finished my freshman year at Shawnee High School in uh, South Jersey, 
and dad had got traded from the Phillies to the Angels. And he was going to try to make a run of it where, you know, he didn't want to uproot the family because we, you know, were born and raised in, or not born, but raised in Jersey and my two younger siblings. And, you know, you know how it is back east. When you're a Jersey kid, especially in your childhood, you, you hate California, you hate everything about it. You know, I'm from Jersey and surfs up in California and I wanted no part of it. And so dad, for the first year with the Angels, you know, he, we just came out for the summer and visited and he got to a point a year in and said, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm bringing my family to Southern California. I came kicking and screaming. I didn't want to leave. Uh, ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me. I got to Southern California and about six months in, I thought, well, this isn't so bad, you know, and, and the, and the advantages you have in this climate out here is, is I could play baseball year round and all my, both my brothers <clears throat> following me could do that. So it was a, it was a great move for us at the time. I didn't know that, but, but I still have my, my Jersey roots. I still have some buddies, uh, from my childhood and nothing but great memories. I mean, Philly, in my playing days, I always loved going to New York, going to Philly, because I knew the culture and what it was like and how serious they take their, 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 not only their baseball, but their sports. What was it like hanging in that clubhouse? Because that, you know, that was a phenomenal team, but also it was a team that had a lot of controversies. But, you know, when you're my age, you're, I started going to the ballpark Veterans Stadium back to when I can remember, I was probably four or five years old. Um, so for a kid, there was no controversy. It was my buddies that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to the playground. I'm going to vet stadium. That was my playground. And as a kid, you really don't understand it or, nor, nor should you, you know, you're a kid. I, I got to, I got to do things that most kids dream of doing at the time. I didn't think it was a dream. I thought, no, I'm just going to work with my dad. Um, but then you grow up and you go through your own career and then you retire from your career and you have your own family. And, and I, <clears throat> because of my childhood memories, I did the best job I could letting my kids come into the clubhouse. Now, my dad was a different, you know, they had me when he was 20 years old, he played in the big leagues for 19 years. So I was in pro ball and dad was still playing in the big leagues. So I got that entire childhood of being around the ballpark. And you don't think about controversy. You just think I'm going to the yard today. I'm going to hang out with Schmitty and Tug and Pete. And that's just my life. And looking back, you know, I, I see to this day, I'll go have dinner with my mom at, at my mom and dad's place. And she's got pictures of me, you know, riding in the float after they won the world series. That to me was like, well, this is what we do. We go ride on the float tomorrow. Millions of people yell at us. Isn't that what every 12 year old gets to do? <clears throat> I really didn't think it was anything special. I wasn't excited, <clears throat> but now I look back and think, wow, what a cool thing that I got to do as a kid. The baseball was always there for me. It was, uh, my parents were unbelievable. The job they did as far as not really pushing it on me. It, you know, I, I was not, I was an athlete. So naturally I love sport. Actually, I love basketball. That was my favorite. I think, you know, being five ten on a good day really didn't help my chances long-term, but, uh, I, I played all three sports, but obviously I had, I had a knack for the game of baseball. It was always put out. There was never forced. I never felt any pressure, uh, you know, that, following dad's footsteps uh it was never put upon me i never cared about it it was just going to the ballpark putting on my philly uniform uh hanging out with the philly fanatic i mean these are things that that, that i got to do as a child and to this day uh, i cherish them 
Who was your biggest buddy in the clubhouse? I don't know. Lusinski used to talk about you all Bull, the time, but I yeah, assume Bull, Tom was, was a buddy. Bull was he was more than my buddy. Bull was more of a family member because Dad and, and Greg and Schmitty, for that matter, came up together in the minor leagues. When when my parents were in the minor leagues, I lived with Bull. So our families combined, you know, back then they, they weren't making a lot of money. So we lived with Gene and Greg and, you know, Kim and Ryan came along after that. Uh, so Bull was more of a family member. And then the other one, Schmitty was my buddy. I loved Manny Trio. I loved hanging out with Tug. But really, you know, Pete came along in 79 and his son, Petey Jr., uh, he was a similar age. So we kind of hung out. But I really didn't have a favorite player. I, I loved them all. You know, I'd, I'd go from hanging out with Tug and catching the ball behind my back <clears throat> to sitting with Manny Trio, painting his glove with, with black shoe polish. And I ended up being a second baseman, so I'm hanging out with my first influence as a second baseman. So I never had, you know, lefty was always moody, uh, but another dynamic of that clubhouse. I love to sit there after the games and listen to Bull and Larry Boa go back and forth and then Schmitty, you know, throw his two cents in. But uh, I, I ate it all up. I mean, it was just coming to the ballpark, hanging out with those guys. It, the, my biggest nightmare was when dad said, no, you're not coming to the ballpark today. And I thought, how dare you tell me I can't come to the ballpark today? I mean, that was my whole world. And I had to put my uni on and I had to put my spikes on. And I didn't realize till later, you know, the game would start. And I, I was pushing the envelope all the time. I had my uni on. I wanted to be in the clubhouse. I wanted, I needed to be in the dugout with those guys during the game. And dad would get to a point where he'd be like, all right, he'd give me that look. And that look meant get the hell out of here. So, oh, man, I got it. No, I'm going to hanging out with the fanatic or I'm hanging out behind home plate with the, with the grounds crew, you know, and that was my new spot where I'd watch the game from, from behind home plate. So, I learned how that was later in life when, when I was going through my own career and my kids would come to the ballpark with me, I, I thought, well, I've got a job to do here, you know, and it's great having my kids being able to experience this, but, but, you know, it's time to go to work and, and Brett, you've, I know you're enjoying yourself. I know this is what you live for, but uh, you know, there comes a time and point where I got, I got to go to work here. And, and I understood that as you get older, but once again, no favorites, just my, what was the, what was the shoe? The shoe, what? What was the shoe polish? Of Manny if you look Trio? at Manny Trio's, what were, you, what were you doing with his glove? <clears throat> if you look at Manny Trio's gloves back then, they were Wilson. I believe they were Wilson a 2000s. Classic model. Now I ended up using a Mizuno my entire yep. career, but Manny, he, he, the web, he would keep the, the, the regular leather color, the classic, but he would take, black shoe polish and just coat after coat after coat after coat on those gloves so i kind of took a liking to that thing oh, i'm gonna hang out with you know i'm a, I'm a middle infielder at the time i was a shortstop and i'm like oh, i like hanging out with the second baseman i like his glove so then he'd give me he'd give me tasks he'd be like all right booney and you know there was a language barrier there a little bit with manny but we understood each other. He's like, all right, you want to do it? So I'd help him paint his backup glove, for maybe the glove that he was going to use next year. So I'd sit there and I'd put coat after coat after coat on. So those those are some of the little things I got to do. What was the point of that? How did that what, what? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, because I no, got to assume that. You the know, why, why do guys wear white spikes? <laughs> you know, 
It's just his style. It's something different that he wanted to do, and that was Manny's way. I, mean, I got to assume that he snares a ball in the hole, and that ball is now done. You know, that's black shoe polished. No, no, but the black wasn't on the inner part of the glove. Oh, it's on the, the glove, outside the part. Okay. still the leather. It, okay. was the ex- so it, was just- it was the exterior. Yeah, it was all style. Oh, it was points. style. Okay. Right, it was aesthetic. Oh, I get it. It was aesthetic. <laughs> all right. Right, right. All right, so you, may, you get to the big leagues, USC and, and the big leagues, and you get to Seattle. And you're around some studs. Now, I believe you missed A-Rod there, right? I'm, Alex and I never played together. I yeah, was, I mean, I he was, was coming, going the year. I was going. He was coming. I was yeah. coming back. He was going. Yeah. But you crossed over with Randy Johnson and Junior when he comes up. And I guess also Ben Davis. Um, was Jamie Moyer there? Ben Davis. No, Moyer wasn't He there. wasn't there. Okay. Ben Davis, one, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite teammates of all time. All right, go ben ahead. Ben Davis was. Yeah, we it's funny. Love that. Yeah, we have him on, we have him on it a couple of days. So I'll ask him about that. But now Junior comes up as a as a 19-year-old, and um you know, he's just he takes the, the nation by storm. Um what kind of guy was he when he came up and, and when you looked at him, what did you see? Kenny, I'll tell you, Kenny was my first I was introduced to to the term humble when I met Kenny, I, I got to the big leagues. I got through the minor leagues really quick. Uh, got to the big leagues in 1992. And I remember <clears throat> going to Baltimore and made my debut. I got to hit my first at bat, drove in a run, uh, sitting there on first base thinking, wow, I got, you know, I got 3000 to go and this isn't going to be a problem. It's going to be easy. <clears throat> and then I watched Ken Griffey jr. Play on a daily basis. And I thought, Wow, I thought I was really good. You know, we're the same age. I thought I was a really good player. I'm seeing something at a different level here because uh, we're the same age. And it's like he's just born different than the rest of us. I remember Jay Buner was a big influence on me early in my career. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and he would teach me the ropes, him and Edgar. And I remember we used to talk about tonight's starting pitcher. And, you know, I, I, I just was like a spot. I wanted to I wanted to learn as much as I could because I didn't know any of these guys. So Buner and Edgar kind of took me aside and we'd talk about tonight's starter and what his tendencies were. And Junior would walk by, you know, and I'd throw a zinger. at Junior. Hey, what do we got, Junior? You know, he'd just kind of look at me like I had three heads. I just see the ball hit ball, you know. And, and I remember Jay on a consistent basis. And Jay's hitting, you know, he's coming into his own. He, three years in a row, he hit 40-plus homers. And he said, Booney, he said, do me a favor. Don't pay attention to him. He, he's just different than the rest of us. We're, we, don't, we don't work on that level. He said he just does things that the rest of us can't do. <clears throat> and for the short time that I played with Junior, I played with him uh, through the 93 season before I moved on to Cincinnati watching him on a daily basis and to this day you know i got a chance to play with a lot of great players throughout my career but to this day best best player uh top to bottom i've ever played with just the things he did at such a young age and it was weird because i got through the through the minor leagues and i was always the kid and i got to the big leagues and now i'm with the kid and he kind of mentored me. I mean, it was weird having somebody, a peer of mine, that we were the same age and would take me because I, my first 120, 130 bats in the big leagues was really eye-opening. Like, the big leagues is different than the minor leagues. And I, and I had, you know, my growing pains. And I remember him in the kingdom taking me under 
you know, under the, <clears throat> under the bleachers and just saying, Brett, come here. And we'd have talks and he'd say, Hey, this is what you got to do in this situation. And I'm sitting there going, you're the same age as me. Nobody <laughs> ever gives me fatherly advice from, from a peer, but Kenny was that guy. Kenny was, you know, he's he, in a crowd. He's Kenny. He's junior. He's at backwards, but one-on-one, he really, he helped me more than, than he knew back in those days by just being a calming presence and someone I could go to that we were the same age. And, uh, but, but talent wise, man, he was, he, he did some things, you know, like Buner would say, the rest of us aren't built to do. We're talking to Brett Bruin. Now, Brett, uh, you're, you're playing second base and Randy Johnson, who, when, when they made contact, I'm, I'm assuming that right-handed batters made late contact with him on, on those nights that he pitched, did you know you had to be on your toes? No, no different. You know, def- defensively, it's it's no big deal. I mean, it's game's game. But I do remember, you know, and, and later I got to, you know, I got to face Randy quite a bit throughout my career. And no no walk in the park. You know, you know, from a defensive standpoint, before I ever faced him, why the dominance was what it was. Um, once again, I got to play – with and against a lot of great, great pitchers. You know, one year in in uh, 1999, I played with the Braves and I had Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. So I got a front, you know, up front seat to that for, for an entire year as far as, you know, my my opinion, probably definitely in my lifetime, uh, the greatest the greatest pitching staff in Major League Baseball history, probably uh, it's definitely in the argument. But from what I've seen in, in my lifetime, uh, I see it unmatched. So you see a dominance. I never saw a dominance like Randy Johnson playing defense behind him. I've never seen somebody when he was on his game as dominant as Randy Johnson. If he had his good stuff, if he was hitting his spots, it wasn't a matter of whether we're going to win or lose. It was a matter of how many was he going to strike out? Was he going to strike out 15 or was he going to strike out 20? It was something, it was unbelievable. And that was at a time where he was starting to come into his own. Started off in Montreal, had the had the uh, the problems with his control, got his mechanics in order. And by 93 and then 94 and 95, where he started to hit his stride, he's just as dominant as ever. ever I just had Randy on my podcast and, and everybody, the thing with Randy Johnson is that, yeah, he's 6'10 and he's got the reach. And he throws 100. So everybody, the layman thinks, well, he threw 100 and he was 6'10 and it was a different angle. Yeah, all that was there. But people don't give Randy the credit of the, the quality of pitcher he was with that arsenal that he had. I mean, he he was unpredictable. He'd throw me a 2-0 slider with nobody on in a 6-2 lead. He was unpredictable. In any time where it's thinking, you're 6'10, you throw 100. We're not at a crucial part of the game. Just give me a fastball to hit. You couldn't just sit on a fastball with Randy because he was a pitcher. You know, he'd front door you with a two-seamer. And I'm just going, what else you got for me, Randy? Three-one sliders. And and would throw him for a strike. I mean, he was just that good. And, uh, yeah, the most dominant pitcher I ever played behind. Who were, who were the toughest guys that you faced in your long career? I, I've... I, I mentioned him earlier, you know, you get that as an ex-player, that's that's a pretty big question that everybody asks you. Who are the greatest? Who's the best? I, I limit it to this. Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. It was the best threesome I've ever seen. That's back in the day before the internet. We had USA Today. Uh, I'm going to Atlanta in two weeks. 
and I'm going to start to count the days. Maddox pitched today. Okay, so Tuesday, Thursday, and see who we were going to hit. And I was always pulling for, and he was a great pitcher. Kent Merker or a Denny Nagel, who was the fourth starter for, for some of the years in Atlanta. We're, you're just begging to get Nagel or Merker, who were great in their own right. But you just didn't want that trio of Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. And it seemed like every time, man, I, I'd be doing that USA thing, and I've got my you know, I've got my pen out, and I'm going Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. And I'm going, no, not again. So, uh, yeah, those were the guys. I, there were so many great pitchers. I, I think uh, – a guy like a Kevin Brown didn't get his his just due as far as the greats. Uh, Pedro, obviously, for a three or four year period, about as dominant as they come. Clemens, that that Yankee staff, uh, you know, for for years was was great. But uh, there there's so many great ones. So I just keep it simple. Kevin Brown threw that threw that heavy ball, where you felt like you're heavy you're... ball. And he could. There's there's not too many guys that in the modern day game of baseball could on a given day, get away with one pitch with the best players in the world. Kevin Brown could do it. He could tell you, I'm throwing you a two seam sinker. And if he's locating it, he could pitch an entire game with that pitch. And there's not too many people, not only now, but in the history of the game that could tell you what was coming and it wouldn't make a difference. Kevin Brown on a given night could pitch with one pitch. Uh, Brett, you, uh... Yeah, you you had uh, a lot of pop uh, 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 for a guy your size, second base. And you wouldn't expect it that you had that kind of pop. What, when did you realize that you had that kind of bat speed and pop? Well, I always had power. Um, <clears throat> I didn't hit twenty home runs in the big leagues till I think nineteen ninety eight. When I moved on, I went to the Braves. I went to I had a stop in in San Diego. And I started to make some tweaks to my swing. It really changed when I got to Seattle. And and I talked about the early mentorship with an Edgar Martinez. Well, I, as a veteran player, when I came back to Seattle, uh, I really took advantage of that that mentoring. I, I sat down day one with Edgar, and we went through the game. I had made a swing change going into that year that was that really ended up benefiting me greatly for the rest of my career. But I really wanted to know what made him tick and what made him different. And the great right-handed hitters of my time, the Manny Ramirez's and the Edgar's, what made them great. And he really helped me a lot. Just getting to that next level of the thought process of hitting. And, and to me, it's it's such a mental thing. And it's, it's a thought process. It's an approach. And it's not an approach. Uh, it, it's an approach for 162 games throughout the season. And we came up with a with a plan and a, and an approach, and we stuck to it, and we don't waver from it. And it ended up being something that kind of changed my career and, and took me to a different level offensively, strictly because of my approach. It's when I left the batter's box, all the thought process, all the thinking, it's gone. I have my approach. I take it to the plate. I apply it. I don't waver from it. Sometimes I get bit in the butt. Sometimes I lose. Sometimes I tip my cap to the pitcher. But I found that over 162, it was going to give me individually the best chance to perform at the highest level I could. And I, I learned that from Edgar. And it's something that I'll pass on to younger players now. You know, everybody's not ready for the high tech thought, the game inside the game. But if you're ready for it, you can comprehend to it, comprehend it. You can put it into play. Uh, and apply it to your game 
wow, it, it makes such a difference. I, I watched Manny for years. He's probably the epitome of it. He's probably a guy that had a had an approach and stuck with it more than I've ever seen. The most mentally disciplined hitter I've ever I've ever seen. We went through that. Edgar and myself would go through it on a daily basis. What makes it different? What makes Edgar different? And we applied all those principles to my swing, and 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 I give that a lot of credit to the second half of my career and the offensive uh, success that I had. You had a, a, a really fast, whippy swing. Um, you know, I, this I got to ask you this question because it's 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 a, it's out there, and and mm-hmm. you had to deal with it. Canseco threw a lot of guys under the bus. One of the guys he mentioned was you. How did that make you feel, and how do you feel about it now? At the time, I I looked at it, and I thought, wait a minute. When did this conversation take place? Because I know Jose, as through the years, the, the times that I had played against Jose uh, up until that point had been, at the most conversation I ever had with him at second base was way to swing it. Thanks. That was the... the that was it. Now, all of a sudden, I'm reading this book. And, you know, at the time, that book was a huge deal. And I'm reading this book, and it says, he's with the Angels, and me and him are having a conversation at second base. I'm going, I've never talked to Jose Canseco. The only thing for me is Matt Lauer called me at the time, the Matt Lauer. And uh, he had Canseco, and he said he got his research team. Well, come to find out, he never played against the Mariners in that spring training let alone reach second base. So they posed the question to him. You said Brett Boone had this conversation with you. What happened? You never got to second base against the the Mariners. Oh, it must have been as we were coming and going off the field. And at that point, I I just kind of dismissed it as, oh, yeah, that's what I would talk to a complete stranger about leaving the field. I'm taking steroids, Jose, and, you know, let's let's talk about it. So I dismissed it as (laughs) – you know, it's like I'm not going to sit here and dismiss that book because he blew the whistle on a lot of things. Some of the things in that book came out proved to be true. I think he he had a book to write. He had a lot of in, uh, personal knowledge that he experienced. And he had to fill up a complete book. So he started making assumptions. He started making educated guesses on his behalf as to who was taking, who wasn't taking. Uh, strictly from aesthetics, I started training in 1998. Uh, I went from a from a, a a guy that was from the school of, I don't lift weights. I'm a baseball player. That's what my grandpa used to tell me. And and I I was that way through college, through my early career. I got to a point in 1998 where I decided I I want to train. People were starting to train more and more and more. So I changed my body over a couple year period. Uh, but I think it was just a, a thing where Jose now. You know, I've got some stuff that I've lived. I'm speaking on Jose now. I've got some things that I've lived through, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna assume. Yeah, I saw that guy. I saw his body change. So that that's what I chalked it up to. That's a damaging thing to throw out there, though. I, I you know, that's got to infuriate uh, anybody who, who who is falsely accused like that. What was what did you do? Did you have any reaction to it with him or his people or anything? At the time, the thought was. All right, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to get up and bang the drum? And, and and then I thought about it, and I thought, no, all I got to do is tests. You know, oh, okay, at the time there wasn't a test. Now all of a sudden here the tests are coming. Uh, I, I, it's something 
I didn't – what was I going to get out of going after him? Was I going to sue him? Okay, do I win that? Does that take away from my game? Does that take away from my teammates, my team at the time? There was so much going around still to this day. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about a lot of players. Oh, this guy took it. This guy took it. This guy took it. Usually it's a direct result of, do you hit home runs? Okay, you took you, you must have taken steroids if you played in this particular time frame. Where it's much bigger than that. It, it's it, It's not something that's just cut and dry. You know, it drives me crazy, the Hall of Fame now, and what we're going through. And some guys are in and some guys are not in. You hear online, well, he did it the right way. Well, I didn't know you had personal knowledge that that particular gentleman, whoever that may be, it's, you know, hypothetical. He did it the right way. Well, how do we know he did it the right way? You just want him to have done it the right way. So it, it seems like home runs, um, that puts you in that category. If you train in the gym, if you look a certain way, uh, that comes up. So it, it's something that ever since I started training in 1998, 99-ish, I'd always been, people would say, oh, you know, you looked at, well, I worked my ass off. That's why I look like this. So it's it's something, to this day, I hear it. Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you do you think those guys that are, are being left out, you know, Bonds, Clemens, A-Rod, do you think those guys should be allowed in and, and not, uh, the, the voters should not take that in consideration? I think this. <clears throat> I think if you're a voter, uh, whatever your personal, your, your morals tell you. If you, if your line in the sand is, if he tested positive and was suspended from the game of baseball, that means I'm not voting for him. I can respect that. If it was rumored about that you did or people thought you did them, I think that's ridiculous. And you do not have a positive test. I think you got to put everybody in a category, either every the people that didn't test either either everybody did it or everybody didn't do it now if somebody had a positive test manny had two positive tests i completely understand the voters in there thinking well he tested positive twice i get it but for the guys that didn't test positive that are just rumored to have and maybe sometimes you think well we're pretty well, sure about bond, bonds did bonds, bonds never the greatest Bonds is Bonds the greatest test positive. Right. And you know what I laugh at is, well, Bonds, Bonds should have, should have, uh, should have never done it. He was a hall of famer without doing it. I didn't know everybody knew when he started doing it and didn't, didn't do it. Everybody thinks cause you look a certain way. No, that's a result of training how you look. I don't know for me, Barry Bonds, he's by far the greatest player I've ever seen by far, never had a positive test. Barry Bond should be in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's wrap it up with this. Tell me about the Brett Boone podcast and what do you do with it? I assume you get a lot of great guests and the people that you play with over the years in baseball. Uh, t- tell me how you you run your ship here. We do. Uh, you know, I started up a few years ago during COVID, and uh, it, it started off. My agent told me, "Yeah, I, you know, I want to get you some reps on this side of the microphone." You know, I've I've been on the interview side of the microphone my whole life, but never been bringing a guest to you, and and I was kind of against it. I said, "I don't want to do that." You know, probably because it was uncharted waters for me. I'd never welcomed somebody to the Brett Boone podcast, uh, but once I dug into it and started embracing it, started learning. Uh, 
I've really started, I, I, I really enjoy it. It's another challenge. It's something that I had to work at. Uh, you know, I have a, a great team around me that helps me prepare for interviews. You know, it's taught me how to do an interview, not just go down the list in question one, question two, question three. It's more of a conversation. But it started that way three or four years ago. Uh, Odyssey came in and is a partner with us now. Uh, and that's been a great relationship so far. And basically, it's, you know, once a week uh, during the baseball season, I'll have a I'll have a uh, I'll break down the week in baseball. And then usually I have two guests. And so I'll have a guest on Monday, a guest on Wednesday, and then I'll have my show on on Friday, which is turning two with Booney. And we just kind of break down what's gone on in the game of baseball that particular week. So I've had a lot of fun with it, a lot of guests, and, and I'm getting them from all over the place. You know, I mostly baseball, it's baseball heavy, but we've got football, basketball, we've got entertainers. I've got, you know, for instance, this week I'm, I'm taping uh, Doc McGee, who is the the manager of Kiss and Bon Jovi and Motley Crue. So we go off the rails and we go in different, uh, other than just sports, just just interesting stories, interesting people. So it's been a lot of fun. That sounds like sounds like fun. Uh, I guess uh, before I let you go, the, this the Phillies team this year, last year they melted un, uh, unexpectedly to the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, it's tough to get back there. What do, what do you see with this team this year? I think the Phillies last year, uh, yeah, and it's easy to say that Diamondback team. You know, if, if you pick the Diamondbacks to go to the World Series. Uh, I don't believe you, first of all, <laughs> but we all watched that last year and that unbelievable playoff run they made. Uh, the Phillies, you, you remember because you were there uh, when they hosted that first home game and the way the roof, as they do in Philadelphia, they blew the roof off. The it seemed like the, the series was over and all of a sudden they ended up losing that series. I think this Phillies team is really good. I think they're for real. Um I look at their division this year. I think last year, I think the Braves were the best team in that division. I think this year they're evened up. And I think the key for the Phillies this year is, is Nola going to be the Nola we saw down the stretch? He signed a big deal in the offseason with the Phillies to, to retain him. If Wheeler's going to be Wheeler, if Nola can be Nola, I think they've closed the gap on that Braves team that won 104 games a year ago. I think if you have Nola and Wheeler and the Nola and Wheeler that I saw in the postseason last year, I'll throw those two against anybody from a matchup standpoint. You look at the Braves, they got Freed and Strider. They went out and they got – Morton's getting a little bit older, but he's definitely been a great pitcher throughout the throughout his his tenure. You went and got Chris Sale. I don't buy Chris Sale. I don't, I don't think – I don't know that he's going to be healthy. He's proven more times than not that he's not going to be. So I think the Phillies have closed the gap and are kind of on equal footing with the Atlanta Braves going into this season. The Mets – What's going to happen with the Mets? It seems like they're they're snake bitten over there. Senga getting hurt now. Uh, you started off last year with with Scherzer and Verlander, and and Senga, and all of a sudden, all you've got Senga, and now you don't have Senga. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Mets. I look at that division, and it's Phillies and the Braves, and I think they're both going to the postseason with the way it's set up now with the twelve teams. Uh, but it's going to, I think it's pretty on pretty equal footing for who's going to win that division. And I think outside of those two teams. I'd be hard pressed to find somebody that's going to challenge either the Phillies or the Braves in that division. But uh, I still have a a piece of me watches Philly. You know, that's that's 
that's how it is when you're a kid growing up there. Uh, I always keep a special eye out on, on the Phillies to see how they're doing. And as long as the Mariners aren't involved, and that's been pretty safe the last 20-some years, um, uh, I'm always I'm always pulling for the Phillies. All right, so you went to high school again. Where where'd you go? Because my producer well, went to, I think, an enemy school. Shawnee, he probably Darren. either went to well, Lenape or Cherokee. Shawnee. I went to Cherokee, and I hate you now, Brett, because we Cherokee. hate Shawnee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you went to Cherokee. Nobody yeah. likes Shawnee, Brett. I'm a no, Marlboro guy, so you're a Met, you were Medford, I'm Marlboro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's great, though. I, I still, I, I love Shawnee's a big bad wolf. Football, Cherokee, we dominate. We the Shawnee, the Shawnee, Shawnee Renegades. Uh-huh. Yeah, Cherokee Chiefs. <laughs> I only got yeah. one year. I was only on their baseball team one year. Uh, and you're not that much older than me, too. I, I think, what are you, 54? 54. 53. I'm 49. So, yeah, we're, we're right, we're right yeah. in that same wheelhouse, man. We're at same haunt. Same oh, time. You're, you're five, he's five years older than you. You're a puppy. Brett, thank you so much. This yeah. was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you doing it, and good luck with the podcast. You got it. Thank you. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Let's move on to Mike Unleashed. Okay. There's a, a lot of conversation about the new Major League Baseball uniforms. The only thing that stands out to me, now listen, I don't, I'm not a fabric expert, right? <laughs> I never worked for Nike. Nike uh, designed the uniforms, the fanat- Fanatics company made the uniforms. The one thing that stands out is the ridiculously small letters on the back. I, I have no idea. These uniforms are designed to be lighter and, uh, uh, you know, uh, they wick sweat better, just like the, the Nike dry fit. If you own a, a Nike dry fit shirt, you know, they have that, that kind of thing. And, and they're lighter, probably very comfortable to play in. I don't understand why the letters are. Are you really saving that much weight by making the letters smaller? Like I don't, I don't understand that at all. When the prototype rolled off the line, there had to be somebody in the a garment expert of some sort to say, you know, that, that those letters are kind of small. I, nobody said that, and so the jerseys come out with with small letters. I don't understand it. But the one thing that people are now saying they're see through, and that women like it. Now, I, 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 okay, I'm scratching my head here. Why would women like it because they're see-through? The only thing you're seeing is the actual jersey that's tucked into the pants. What What, what are you seeing? A guy's privates? Like you're the, I, I, and, and even that, you got sliding pants on. So I, I guess it looks odd that you can see through the pants and see the sliding pants or the or the jersey that's tucked in. But I, I don't want Darren, I'll bring you. You're an expert on women. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you've been married for a long time. Why would women like yeah, the fact I've been that married they, for a long time? That's why I'm an expert. In women. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would women like the fact that there's these are see through to an extent where you can actually I see the jersey lighter? In. You can make out shapes. A little bit easier to me. They look like you can't make out men. shapes. What you, what shapes are you making I, out? I, you're, that's what I'm guessing. You're, you're tied in there. You got all kinds of equipment that that harnesses your stuff. Oh, uh, nobody wears a cup anymore. This no, it's not. Yeah, everybody wears a cup. A, you, they do. Come it's on. every baseball player wears a cup. Doesn't matter what position you play. You're not hanging out as a major league baseball player. And even if you were, you're wearing a girdle with sliding pa- pads. Sliding yeah, pants. To me, that, they, it looks 
You ever see like an older man with a t-shirt and white box, like old, like bo- loose boxers? That's what it looks like to me because you see the tuck bottom of the jersey in. Okay, you see the bottom of the jersey. What do women? What, how? I, I don't get the woman liking that. I, like, what are what are they liking exactly? Yeah, I, especially for pictures. Like, I I don't think you can. I don't think they're wearing. I think less guys are wearing cups than you think. Dude, trust me when I tell you that baseball players wear cups. Okay, well, they did. You know. Now, they might time. not be the old fashioned catcher cup that like the whole yeah. they, like the thing that looked like a chastity belt. <laughs> they're, they're wearing protection. You're going. You can get hit with a pitch there. You can get spiked. And of course, they're wearing cups. All right, come on, man. Okay, spoken like a non baseball guy. You're right. That's, yeah, that's you. All right, let's let's move I'm a on. Modern baseball guy. Um, Colin Cowherd, who I know very well. I like Colin. He's a he's a monster star, right? I get it. He revealed that he uh, pulled into his house and he saw a, a car with a woman in the car, and uh, he he then figured out that somebody was in his house trying to rob it, and so he called nine one one. Now I haven't heard the the uh, specifics of the story. But uh, what caught my eye is that uh, Colin lives in an $8.5 million house in a town called Westerly, Rhode Island, which he revealed. And I'm going, where the freak did I go wrong? Colin Cowherd's But that's beside the point. I digress. He reveals in this story where he says that he was being robbed that Taylor Swift has a house 10 houses down from his house in Westerly, Rhode Island. And, and I'm going, did you just dime out Taylor Swift? Now, the people that read this story goes, oh, this, that's where she has a house. It's in Westerly, Rhode Island, and it's down the way from Cowherd's house. So we're going to look at every house there. Like, isn't that irresponsible to say something like that? Yeah, it's it's a tension you don't want. By by the way, I think I don't think she lives in that house. I think her dad lives in that house. From if I'm not mistaken, that's where her father. Well, maybe she lives. stops in. It's still it's still yeah, she stops, whether she, she lives pops. in it or not. You know how idiot like people. Oh my God, she's in Westerly Rhode Island. Let's stalk it out in case we can see her. That's the way people think. Like Colin Cowherd couldn't figure that out. Come on, Colin, you can't dime out that you live. Ten houses away from Taylor Swift, the biggest star in the world, and not think that you're going to now that that town's going to be flooded with people who want to catch a glimpse of her. By the way, did you see what happened to her pop over the weekend? A couple days ago, took a swing at (laughs) at an Australian photographer, protected his little girl. Good for him. I like that. Good for him. I do the same thing. Um, I know you would. All right. Here is a, a, a really interesting story. Don Henley. Uh, I love the Eagles. Love Don Henley. I uh, loved his solo career the whole bit. I don't understand why he had felt the need to put this story out here. I'll just read the headline that I saw in the New York Post. Don Henley regrets cocaine-fueled night with 16-year-old prostitute who suffered a seizure. <laughs> oh, What? That's the that's the headline on the story. I'm, I, there are so many things wrong with this story. It's not even funny. 
First of all, okay. He's with a 16-year-old prostitute? He admits that? He admits in the story that he didn't have actually he didn't actually have sex with her. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sure. I get it. You just wanted you just wanted to hang out and talk, right? But now he revealed he was with a 16-year-old. There's no longer a statute of limitations on sexual assault. Is her defense that his defense that she's a prostitute? I don't think so. So if you're that 16-year-old and you're now grown up and you read this story, you go, you know what? I probably should sue him. <laughs> right? I mean, what 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 good comes out of admitting a story like this? Darren, your thoughts. I think he was 42 or 43 at the time. Uh, yeah, what is the point? Like that's something. Oh my god, I don't know what. I don't know if he was looking for like a catharsis, or I don't know what the hell he was looking for. But I, I, dude, you got to bury that. Dude, you got to bury you, that story, she, dude. <laughs> she's. You're admitting that she's 16. Did that yeah. not dawn on you? Yeah, All right, you got. You got to bury that. <sighs> Come on, Don. Uh, okay. Um, Last night at the Palestra, I was fortunate enough to play several games there with my high school team as we, uh, on our mission to the state championship, which we did play in the state championship game and unfortunately lost that game. But there is nothing like the excitement of a high school game at the Palestra. You just feel this vibe, this, this echoing of, uh, it's, 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 it's even different. The din of a high school game is even different than a college game. So last night, the Catholic League Championship, it is a perennial power, Roman Catholic, against Archbishop Ryan. The kids from the Northeast playing for the Catholic League title, right? So at the end of the game, you can see this on Twitter. A kid from Ryan makes a three-point shot to put Ryan up by a point with seconds left. And the kid's running down the court. He's got his hands up. He's like creating the ultimate moment for his childhood that he has won the game with a three-pointer. Roman inbounds the ball. This kid scurries up the, up, up the floor and he rises up with like a foul line jumper and makes it at the buzzer to give Roman the championship. That kid becomes a hero. The kid that made the three-point shot was this close to being a hero. What will that do to the rest of his life? His golden moment went down in flames. I felt sorry for the kid. Oh, my God. That's a moment. That's something he'll dwell on for the rest of his life. Uh, <laughs> I feel I mean, bad. I feel bad. Uh, I'll do respect. Kid. That kid will probably like this is the ultimate end of his basketball career. He's you know, listen, I, he doesn't look like he's a college. It was a smaller kid who made the three point shot. This is probably this is as good as it gets for the kid. And he didn't have the the kid from Roman wouldn't let him have the heroic moment. He just he just put he put an ace on top of a king. Bang! And that was the end of that. <laughs> I could see him like at the end of his days, like in the kitchen with like a bottle of like like Cuddy Shark or something, just like well, huddled over his head in his hands. I can't believe that kid yeah. made that goddamn shot. Yeah. Years from now, yeah. Years from now, he's 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 at he's slumped at over the, his kitchen. He's table. at the end of a of a pub in the Northeast. Go, you know. And I remember when I was when I was seventeen, man. I, I felt so bad. Oh, I can't All believe right. he made that goddamn shot. <laughs> 
Let's close it out with this. I think the kid's <laughs> name kid. was Ryan, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, uh, right. But let's close it out with this. You know, I every, I, every now and then I give you a, t- a TV tip. Well, I just stumbled across this. I like documentaries. So on Netflix, there's this documentary called Lover, Stalker, Killer. And, I'm, and I watch it, and it is, if you have ever been in any kind of a toxic relationship with a female, I'm talking to the males out there, oh, this, this will hit hard. This 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 particular documentary will hit you hard. I won't I won't give away what it is, but it, it has to do with a, a, a scorn lover, and it's 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 mind boggling. So uh, you have to watch it. It's called Lover Stalker Killer, and I'd love to hear your reaction. And you can um, get me on email mike at mikemiss.com if you watch it and let me know how you feel about this. And I guess that'll close it down for today. This has been the Mike Missnelli podcast. Brought to you by Bet Rivers. Again, you can get me, Mike at MikeMiss.com. Check me out on Twitter, MikeMiss25. All the people that came and attacked me over the last 24 hours. People, man, you hurt, you hurt my feelings. I have feelings too. A.J. Brown's not the only guy with feelings. What about poor Mikey Miss? I mean, you know, you, you, you're taking my heart away from me. I, I'm, I'm just out here to serve, and you assassinate me. I'm trying. I'm on your side. You're a man of the people. (laughs) Man of the people. I have feelings too, man. Mikey Miss has feelings. (laughs) All right, everybody. You have a great rest of the day. And uh, uh, so uh, thanks for listening. Tell your friends and neighbors about the Mike Miss Nelly podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. And it will come right to your inbox uh, every time we do a podcast. For Darren, I'm Mike. I'll give you a Steve Frederick sign off. See you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bessinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.